Hey, what's up, folks? Hope you're doing well, and we appreciate you tuning in to this week's episode of Concessions with Dan and I. This is our 24th mainline episode, and so in honor of one of my very favorite 2000s TV dramas starring Kiefer Sutherland, we're going to be considering this our season finale. And we saved kind of a doozy for the occasion. First off, our guest this week is a dear friend, Matthew Doe, who is seriously like a brother to me, but also the novelist behind the absolute blast of a sci-fi page turner that is I Am Waltz. You can find I Am Waltz wherever books are sold. As if that weren't enough, he's also the writer and producer behind the film Teenage Badass, which was in competition at South by Southwest back in 2020 and can be found streaming on Tubi and the Roku channel and for rent on Amazon, YouTube, Apple TV, etc., etc., etc. The episode itself also feels like a season finale because it has got a lot of heat behind it. It's a movie that Matt and Dan have both separately spent a lot of time defending from me because it's a beloved one, but it's one that I dislike with kind of a burning passion. It's Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. If you're listening to this, it's very likely that you're a fan of the film, and so I'm sorry in advance, and please forgive me. Later this week, you can also look forward to some bonus content from this project where I interview the incredible jazz guitarist Juanma Trujillo to get his take on the film from an informed, educated jazz musician's perspective. If you're enjoying Concessions, please give us a follow and a rating wherever you happen to be listening. We'd also appreciate it if you found us online and told us whether we're rushing or dragging. I'm on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is over on Twitter at Dan Concedes. Now, I hope you enjoy hearing Matt, Dan, and I digging as deep as we can in our discussion of Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And we are Russian Dragons. Right? This movie is about Russian dragons? Um, I mean, I haven't watched this movie before, so maybe. Something like that. They say it over and over in the movie. But today we're joined by Matthew Doe. He's a screenwriter, author, producer, and actor working in LA. His debut feature, Teenage Badass, almost debuted at South by Southwest in 2020 before COVID decided uh, to put an end to that. But you can find it online right now. Uh, we won't tell you where, so Matt doesn't lose his SAG eligibility. Uh, but you can find Matthew's uh, sci-fi novel, I Am Waltz, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever else you find and purchase books. Uh, he's also the co-writer of Glorious the Musical, along with yours truly, Matt Doe. Welcome to Concessions. Thank you. What a what a great in, uh, intro, Jared. It's uh, yeah, it's great to be here with both you guys. I'm really excited. Why are you so excited? Because I'm excited to talk about this movie, The Russians and Dragons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, uh, ru- this Russian fantasy film, Whiplash, about Russian dragons. Russians and dragons. Russians versus dragons. <laughs> debuting <laughs> next week on the Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> That does it's sound legitimately like something that, like, you know, back in the days where you had the TV Guide channel and it would, like, be scrolling through. I could see that being a made-for-TV movie title. 
that would be on the sci-fi channel. It's a big, big departure for Damien Chazelle, you know, like his other work, it just, you know, you have all these, these this other work, it kind of like builds together, but then you have this sci-fi. It's, it's just, it's refreshing, I think. Yeah, it's, it's good to see him really branch out, you know, especially mm-hmm. when it's one of his first major feature films to really swing for the fences with something so avant-garde. To, to, to rein in a little bit, uh, let's go uh, around the three of us. Uh, Jared, what are you sipping on over there? Uh, I am still sipping on my Pelican Brewing Head out American style Hefeweizen ale from the Oregon coast Pelican Brewing since 1996. Not a sponsor <laughs> yet. What about you, Dan? I made myself a pint of margarita uh, using my uh, other uh, industry or other career other than podcaster, which is my first career, of course, uh, as a bartender to just made a giant thing of margarita that I will be hopefully sipping on slowly throughout the podcast. So if I start slurring and getting excited uh it's the tequila talking uh what about you matt uh i am enjoying about like two fingers of uh bullet rye Mm -hmm. i don't know it's a whiskey or it's a bourbon but i'm doing that but then i'm also i also have a diet pepsi just to counteract you know if i get a little sleepy i need to be sharp at the same time it's all about balance i understand that yeah it's yeah very important which this movie is not about balance at all. <laughs> no. It is about it is about the idea of stimulants in certain uh, aspects. Well, enough about what we're putting into our bodies. What did we put into our minds this week? Other than whiplash, what's something that you watched, read, played? You know, what, what did you enrich your life with this week? Oh, I actually watched a lot this week because... I was, you know, battling the storm, uh, <laughs> Hurricane, Hurricane Hillary, and I decided to go to Palm Springs, which was just like the epicenter of it. So during the hurricane or tropical storm as it was coming through, I thought it'd be a pretty immersive experience to watch Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched Titanic, and then I followed it up as like an encore performance with uh, Insomnia, and both were both were great. I forgot how long Titanic is until I watched it, and... It's a doozy, but I did look up where the intermission was at an hour and 47 minutes from like the VHS tapes. And I used that to have my own personal intermission, which kind of felt special. <laughs> um, yeah, I only saw Titanic for the first time last summer. Uh, so now I'm fully like part of the culture again after checking that out. Congratulations. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I have such fond memories of going to Blockbuster and grabbing, I think, like one of the last copies of Titanic off the shelf the day it came out on VHS and just having my mind blown. It's on two. Uh, <laughs> There's uh, so much movie here. Exactly. This is like a two for the price of one deal. I couldn't believe it was the same price to rent Titanic as it was to rent Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday. Is yeah. there any, like, with the double feature, is there any, like, connective tissue that you saw between the two did they enhance one another in any way i mean they're both they both have glaciers <laughs> they've they, you know they get a titanic you know they both ace themselves taken, in that way taken taken down by an iceberg but also they uh, they fly over a bunch of icebergs and glaciers yeah see um those two movies are why we have uh done fought the good fight and if we're lucky all the glaciers will be gone uh Human, humankind's natural mortal enemy, the glacier. If we focused on continuing to warm the globe, the Titanic would still be with us today. Ugh, R.I.P., you know? Lost a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, J- uh, Jared, what about you? What uh, would you check out this week? I'm trying to think of anything that I watched 
or read at all this week that wasn't just supplementary material for Whiplash. And there, there wasn't much. I watched, okay, I, I, I watched Whiplash and then I watched Whiplash with commentary by Damien Chazelle and J.K. Simmons, who, by the way, there was a time in my life where I uh, I thought that, uh, that he wrote the Harry Potter novels. What? He did it. Oh, I get that. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I read the Whiplash screenplay. <laughs> I, I read a couple of biographies. I read Kansas City Lightning by Stanley Crouch. was a biography of Charlie Parker, uh, the, apparently the, the greatest musician of the 20th century. I'm not one to argue that. That's said in the movie. Uh, and then I read a biography about Buddy Rich, uh, who I don't remember who wrote it, but it was not very good. Uh, and then I watched, uh, for the first time ever, the the only Damien Chazelle movie I'd never seen before this week, a uh, guy in Madeline on a park bench mm. um, to get a little bit more context as to where he was heading kind of prior to Whiplash. And maybe most notably, I, for the first time in my life at 36 years old, began playing Pokemon Red for the Game Boy. And that's a weird feeling when you've never been exposed to just a, a monumental piece of uh, you know, pop culture. So, And then you, then you actually go and experience it for yourself. And you already kind of know all about it. Who was your starter? Oh, um, I always I always want to call him Charizard, but I know that's his like evolution, <laughs> evolution. Uh, I started with Charmander, which apparently you, you shouldn't do because like all of the first trainers that you encounter will just mess up a fire type. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, so are you one of those parents where like when when kids are playing with their Pokemon? Oh, is that Pokemon Pikachu? Is that a Pikachu? That's a Pikachu too. They're all Pikachu. Oh no, I I, I know many a Pokemon just through osmosis. We're like being, you know, having been like ten years old when the first Pokemon game came out. Uh, but no, I just uh, I was a shitty little kid who thought that uh, I was I wasn't I was too good for like little kid stuff. By the time I was ten, same Pokemon fell into that category, as did Harry Potter, actually. Uh, so one day I will expose myself to anything Harry Potter related, but I haven't done mm. that either, other than yeah. watching this movie that stars the author of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was playing Pokemon all the way into college, like bus trips, going around to play other teams. I had a uh, what was it, Heart Gold? I was playing that in college. I've, I played all of them. I was invested. The only experience <laughs> I have with Pokemon is. I when it was really popular when I was a kid, I got one of the books that told you how much they predict projected each Pokemon was worth. And I would have a bunch of like crappy ones and would ride around the neighborhood on my bike with my, on my bike, find kids with Pokemon cards and be like, oh, let me trade with you. Let, uh, let me look at what you have. And I'd give them some of my crappy cards and I take their whole deck and then I just book it on my bike and steal them. Um, so <laughs> that's that's what I did with Pokemon. Uh, and I, I don't feel bad about it. Hey, that's that's real Sigma male hustle grind set that you were on from a, yeah. a young child. I'm very much a Terrence Fletcher type. Good for you. Good for you, honestly. <laughs> Dan, what about you? What did you watch? What did uh, you read this week? So it's interesting. I, I had it loaded in the chamber that I thought I was going to talk about Chicago for uh, my movie because um, that's just like a, a very fun little murdery film. But then the other day I watched uh, My Dinner with Andre. Um, I, th I talked to Jared about it, but Matt, have you seen it? I have not. Um, it's on Max right now, not HBO, but Max. Mm. Um, it is excellent. Um, it, it <laughs> it's kind of funny. It kind of reads like a cinematic podcast for about two hours, where it's just two people who 
are incredibly well-spoken and erudite, uh, just kind of go back and forth for about two hours. But by the end of it, yeah, I don't even know how to quite describe it. It's one of those, for lack of the uh, the cliche of it, it's one of those very like life-affirming sort of films where you get out of it and you're you're like, yeah, man, it really is about all the, the experiences and the people that we love that makes life worth it. Wow, isn't that cool? It's like, you know, for a movie, like, for a movie to succeed at getting across a really cliche point in a way that doesn't feel cliche is really difficult, and uh, they pull it off really well. Does it have Wallace Shawn playing himself, or at least a guy called Wallace? I forget what their names are, to be honest. Uh, oh, he does drop an inconceivable, though, in the script, which is very funny. Really? But oh, this is before Princess Bride, too, so it's just a, yeah, it's just a word oh, that really? he decides to use at a point. I think it's like 81 when it came out or something like that. That's why. Wow. Okay. It's inconceivable, one could say. <laughs> All right. But anyways, let's uh let's dive right into the whole uh this Russian dragon film, this fantasy epic that we uh we've all watched this week. Uh so Whiplash is a 2014 film directed by Damien Chazelle. There's also an additional directing credit for uh Nicholas Harvard. Uh, the writer is also Damien Chazelle. The editor is Tom Cross. It stars Miles Teller, J.K. Simmons, uh, Paul Reiser, and Melissa Benoist. Uh, Benoist. I've I've been saying Benoit for years now until I listened to the commentary track on this movie, and it's Benoist. I'm glad that uh, I I really Midwesterned it, where because there's a town near me called Beloit, or where I grew up called Beloit. So like the O I. ST kind of sound, I immediately go Beloist with my, my heavy ass accent there. Um, but yeah, that's um, that's Whiplash, uh, nice 2014 film. It definitely, when it landed, it landed with a bang or I guess a, a drum kick, maybe. I don't know, that's the, the pun there. Uh, uh, so yeah, let's just like go right into it. Uh, Jared, we'll start with you with your previous relationship with have you seen Whiplash before? What was it like watching it the first time? What was it like watching it this week? What's your previous experience with stuff in like films about music, films uh, from Damien Chazelle, films about jazz? Uh, yeah, just give us uh, kind of some background about your uh, feelings walking in. Yeah, well, uh, I'd never, you know, I'd never heard of the director when I first watched this movie in 2014 in the movie theater. Um, I the first time I watched it, I remember um, being really, you know, exhilarated by the movie, thrilled by it, um, all the all the tension and the release of tension, you know, like very uh, pungent stuff, <laughs> uh, real smelly now. Uh, and, but I, I do recall thinking afterwards, like, why did that make, movie make me feel bad? Like usually when like a movie gets my adrenaline going, I leave like kind of hyped, but I left that movie feeling like sort of violated in a way. And then I watched it again shortly after that. And really like without getting swept up in the, you know, the first time watching it, uh, you know thrill ride and uh really really sunk to the bottom of my list of all-time favorite movies or to the somewhere near the top of my list of the movies i disliked the most in my entire life um <laughs> and uh since then you know i've I've been a little bit lukewarm on damien chazelle's movies you know i kind of liked la la land i kind of liked first man i i like babylon a little bit more than all of those but uh something about whiplash has completely soured uh damien chazelle for me in in a way that i'm not sure is i'm gonna ever recover from 
where uh, now every time I think of Damien Chazelle, like I hear his name, my brain finishes it with Damien Chazelle, best known for having an Academy Award accidentally given to him. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at with this movie. I hate this movie in so many ways that I can't wait to count them in the next you know hour or so. So I'm glad we started off with a very mild, acceptable milk toast opinion. Uh, that's a good way to ease into this uh, discussion. Uh, what about you, Matt? Um, I I remember seeing Whiplash for the first time uh, in theaters, and I mean it it was nine years ago, I guess. So when it came out, and I first saw it, I had a f- similar feeling. I remember being very like moved by it. I didn't feel bad. I remember feeling what I thought was inspired at the time. I'm now watching it again. I'm rethinking whatever my nine-year-old mind was like nine years ago, what I was thinking. I was like, you were nine. I wasn't nine. Um, (laughs) Not, not much older, (laughs) but I, um, you know, I really felt like I loved it at first. I thought, and then uh, I don't know what happened, but I, I liked La La Land. I thought it was okay. I never saw first man. Um, and I, I hated Babylon. I, I, by the time Babylon came out, I had pretty much decided that I thought Damien Chazelle just like a academia itself is trying to make a movie. And it's like so mm. in love with itself and it's mm. like own education that I just wanted to like throw up. Um, and then rewatching Whiplash this week, I, I don't I wouldn't say I hated it. It's not like I'm not that passionate about um, my anger towards it. However, I did leave it going. Oh, I actually think that this is not very good. Like, I I think I'm not inspired by it. Now I just think it's a movie about abuse, where in the end, the abuser wins. Mm. That was my takeaway, which I didn't like. I didn't like how I felt at the end of it this time. Huh, that's interesting. I guess uh, I thought that uh, Jared would probably be the one dying on a hill and we would be attacking him from the the top of the We Love Whiplash Hill. But I guess it's it's just me all alone fighting the horns. that's what uh, Matt told me was going to happen. He said he loved Whiplash, <laughs> and and there, there are there are a lot of parts about this movie, a lot of things I do love. So you're not going to die yeah. on all the hills alone. Well, and it's interesting that you said like you're you're changing opinion over time because that that's very much what struck me upon my first viewing. I didn't check it out in theaters. I think I saw it about a year later. Uh, it was my senior year of college. Uh, when I saw it, you know, on streaming or pay-per-view or whatever, and I was immediately entranced by, you know, the craft of it, the tension of it. Yeah, it's very exhilarating. I would say it has a similar experience like the first time I saw Uncut Gems, where just the whole time you're like just, you know, your your whole body is puckered up and you're like, and, you know, it's exhilarating to watch that. And especially at the time when I'm still, you know, I'm 20 one or 22 depending on when i watch it i don't know exactly when um i'm still engrossed in the world of college sports and the the sort of ethos that the movie was uh showing for good bad or other is one i was very familiar with and it was very alluring like i I definitely could tell upon viewing it now this week that i was on board with what J.K. Simmons was doing a little too much when I was younger, and now I'm seeing through it a little better now. But interestingly, where what like Matt, what you were saying is like that has kind of slightly lessened your opinion of it or sobered your opinion, I guess would be the better word. Uh, for me, I because I'm seeing it in that new angle, I'm seeing it from a different perspective, and actually, it, it sort of enriched it for me because, um, at least from this new perspective. 
I'm seeing how it's working on a different level where it's interesting that like I've kind of gone from like the seduced mild tell miles teller character to a bit more of a character that would be not as easily swayed by all this stuff. But I see the movie working in both ways. So I'm still like, yeah, yeah. I almost want to say, I think I kind of like it more <laughs> now, uh, nine years later. Cause I think I'm seeing it operating on a different level. Now we can get into whether or not he meant it or not. We could do a whole death of the author thing about it or not. Um, but just from my experience now, I'm seeing it as a bit of a richer text than when I was a little bit younger and more easily seduced by it. Um, so yeah, um, going kind of, oh, I guess just general, uh, Damien Chazelle opinions too. La La Land, um, first man fine kind of forgot about it i love babylon love babylon a lot um so i'm still like i'm still on the damien chazelle train i'm still excited like if he comes out with the next project i don't need to see the preview i'm just gonna go see it uh i think he definitely has an interesting point of view and lord knows he has so much creative uh freedom that i know when he's gonna put something to screen it's at least gonna be a lot of something to to take in um but yeah but just moving right into um let's just jump right into like the craft of this thing before we get into like the story because it sounds like the story we're definitely going to be hemming and hawing about that quite a bit yeah um yep. i, I want to just start with what, what i think is a, most of the commentary that i read about or most of the praise i've read about it is in two ways is a the sound design and then more broadly the editing of this film is remarkable um so uh matt i'll start with you because uh you actually do this uh what, what did you think of like the sound design the editing of whiplash yeah i i mean i think the editing is great i think there is like um the pacing of it, it it is just like that's what keeps the tension i think the editing is really what keeps the tension there's a lot of like rapid cuts you know you get a, a lot of going to uh, fletcher conducting back to uh, back to Neiman, Fletcher, Neiman, Fletcher. And you just, it, it, there's this like battle that's happening the whole time that I think happens because of the editing. You can shoot it a, a number of other ways and you might really lose a lot of that tension that builds up between them because it really is like, you know, they, especially Fletcher's like so commands the screen. And the other thing is they shoot it really tight, right? Like the framing is pretty tight. You are in Fletcher's face. You are like just on the drum skins. You're looking at the bloody hands. Everything is like really intense and right there. Um, so yeah, like that's a, that's a hill. I'll, the, the editing I love. Like I can't hate the the, the editing of it. Um, I think it, it. I think it won an Oscar for the editing. I don't remember exactly, but I think it did. Um, and it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Jared, what about you with, uh, just your general idea of, you know, you can go specifically editing sound design, but just kind of the, the bones of this film. Yeah. Well, well I, I want to talk later on a lot more about the editing and, and a specific thing Matt said about the, the, I guess the, 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 the length of the, the distance of the shots and then the editing and how that actually evolves through the movie. And uh, that'll become later, but I, I guess I want to focus on the screenplay cause that's, uh, a, that's a thing that was nominated for the Oscar, but I don't think Chazelle won for it. I think the screenplay is like so uh, economical and uh, just like whip sharp, like just just like whip so sharp. You say I did, and uh, I think it does. Like a couple things that I think it does just extraordinarily well is there's this sort of ambiguity that goes through the whole thing that informs Fletcher's character and just not knowing exactly what his end game is or how far he's willing to go or how much is a facade he's putting on and how much is fueled by 
like real malice. You never know, right? Like you could at any point sort of prescribe to him, like he's just evil or prescribe to him, he's an evil genius, right? Um, but I think a cool thing that the screenplay does specifically is that the very beginning of the movie is just Fletcher observing Andrew playing one-on-one. And even though it's not explicit in the screenplay, it's not, it you know, that ambiguity I just mentioned goes throughout the movie until the very, very end. You can surmise that Fletcher must have been extraordinarily impressed by what he saw Andrew do at the beginning. And just the fact that that is never explicitly stated, it uh, respects us enough as the audience to really ponder over that. Mm-hmm. But it is pretty obvious because the movie wouldn't happen otherwise. I think that is an indication of things that happen throughout the movie that uh, trust the audience a lot more than your average film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your uh, your your comments about trusting the audience, I think, is where the movie can sort of get in trouble at points because in its ambiguity, it can kind of it can kind of leave some big gaps open for, I, I kind of thought about it with uh, you know, the whole uh, phenomenon of like the quote unquote, Oh, he's literally me. And it's usually like, you know, Patrick Bateman or Tyler Durden or the Joker <laughs> yeah. or things like that. It's just like the worst people you could ever imagine. And those are all three films that like trust their audiences that they'll know that like, Hey, these are bad guys. They don't need to stop in the middle of the films. Like, by the way, don't do Joker things. That's bad. Uh, and then, you know, just the cultural milieu takes it where I think the the film by trusting the audience so much, it can leave the ambiguity to skew towards that this is ultimately like a story of victory, which I think is kind of Jared's main hang up on this film. I, I think that the, the film isn't ambiguous with it being a, a story of victory. I think it's trying I to me. I think the movie's trying to say that Fletcher's actions were appropriate and mm. they worked. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think at the end of the movie, Fletcher and Neiman and possibly Neiman's dad all believe that. Interesting. I didn't think about Neiman's dad in that one. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so, so, so to the, the thesis of the film is that the, the secret sauce to success isn't, a kind and loving and attentive father that gives up on his own dreams of being a writer mm. in order to enrich and encourage your own dreams of being a drummer. The the secret sauce to success is spending like half a semester with the guy <laughs> from Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I could totally see that interpretation. Um, I'm trying to think of like, so, and I guess we'll dig into it more, uh, but just strictly from a uh, technical standpoint, what I like about it is how this movie takes cinematic tropes from other genres and uses them uh, so audiences can kind of feel the flow of it. But they he like perverts them in every single scene to show like one for example is like the whole writing of the dinner scene. Where if this was like let's just take a classic like sports movie where you know he's the young freshman new on campus jk simmons let's just say he's like the you know the salty old coach that's got like tough ways but it works yeah he's, um, he's like a he's like a college basketball coach that throws chairs when he which there. never happens that never happened never it's really. never happened in the history of purdue <laughs> 1985 uh, but there is always that scene where it's like oh he's got to like defend himself and like people belittle him and he stands up for himself and the scene usually plays like oh and like he's growing a spine he's growing confident like look at him go where that same scene happens in Whiplash, except the takeaway is like, oh, he's kind of a dick. Like, 
this guy kind of sucks for the way oh, that he yeah. feels. So it's hitting these same beats or similar beats in the screenplay, but they're doing it in a way uh, that sort of subverts the the tropes to that. Hopefully like an audience that's like paying close attention to that can see it's like, Oh, he's like trying to seduce us into the story that seems like victory, but it's a, it's a victory with this huge catch behind it. Ugh. And that's why I think uh, it ultimately works, but we can, we, we will get into yeah, this. Yeah. I can't wait to tell you why I think that's explicitly incorrect. Um, <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I do hear you though. And, and I think there actually was an attempt at that. Like, I think that, that you and Damien Chazelle agree. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, um, I think that's consciously what he was trying to do. And now it's another yeah. question of whether or not it works. Yeah. Um, so let's just um, get right into it. Uh, no, no, no. Big... Can I say some? Oh. Can I please? Can I please say some things that I like about this movie before <laughs> I really just start start the diarrhea? Yeah. You don't. You don't just want to be a hater. No. 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 I want to make sure that I am at least tempering biases in some way. I think mm-hmm. I want to point out some like technical, like actual technical things that like that are really smart in this movie that I mm-hmm. I only noticed upon watching it many times now <laughs> is. Uh, the very, very beginning of the movie is like a very long and luxurious, just slow push in to Andrew, just absolutely like kicking ass on the drums, which of course I mentioned earlier because because you're 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 Fletcher seeing him, right? And and um but I think the cool thing that that does is Miles Teller, he's a he's a drummer. Like he can he can obviously play the drums, right? But he's not Buddy Rich. Like he's not he's not one of the best jazz drummers in the world. Miles Teller isn't right. So the movie get, like buys so much trust by starting with a very long shot of Miles Teller actually nailing some insane drumming mm. to a point where that's the only thing he probably really had to practice a lot is that first like ten seconds of the movie because after that you never really see him like drumming for longer than like half a second. You see a lot of hands that aren't his drumming and like that sort of thing. But it, it yeah, they invested so much like suspension of disbelief by just like starting the movie that way that I think that's utter genius. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. so smart. Like that's that's something that you know the average Joe is not going to think about, but Damien Chazelle, it's like obvious to him. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that, and we'll get into that too of the whole like parallel to sports movies and that. And that's usually like a, a gripe of sports movies where it's like this guy is playing, I don't know, an NFL athlete, but he doesn't look like he can tackle. Uh, but yeah, this movie does a very good job of putting, yeah, of creating that suspension of disbelief of like, oh, this guy is actually a quote unquote like Juilliard level drummer. Yeah, it goes, go, actually, it does that better than most sports movies for sure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, thank you for your your praise of Whiplash. I, I'm texting Damien Giselle right now. I'm saying Jared has nice things about to say about Whiplash, so he's very pleased. Uh, he'll, I think I sent him your number. He'll send you a text uh, saying thank you. But yeah, let's uh, let's just dive right into it. Of uh, so, the big question about this one is: Does Whiplash fall into the really um, boring and uh, problematic trope of that in order to be good at art or t- anything, really, you just have to, you have to suffer. You have to be miserable. You have to shut off everything else in your life and just be this tortured soul the whole time. Yes. Yeah. I think this movie absolutely revels in just glorifying that myopic, obsessive, all around just like or just completely unrounded person that happens when 
you dedicate your life to being good at something to such an extent that uh, you destroy yourself and others around you. I believe that this movie gives a message that that's okay. Mm. And that that is necessary to be the absolute best of the best. I think that there's a lot of stories in real life that the, you know, the, the general population, they know just the basics of it, right? Like most people, they know that Kurt Cobain was like a very influential songwriter and musician and guitarist. And they know that he did a lot of heroin and that he killed himself. Right. That's, those are the three things that they know about a very complicated man. You say the same thing about Hendrix. You could say the same thing about Joplin, Amy Winehouse, any number of, of Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker, right? This movie specifically leads you to believe as an audience that there were kind of two things about Charlie Parker that mattered. He was potentially the greatest musician of the 20th century, for sure. The greatest saxophone player of the 20th century and that he, he died alone full of heroin. The fact that that's the point of view that like that, that's the information the movie gives us. And then it ends with, this person who's potentially on that same path, having this just like the movie ending right at his moment of absolute just triumph and catharsis and self-actualization even. And that's, that's it. That's all we're, that's all we know about Andrew Neiman. That it to me is pretty fucked up. Mm, mm. See, that's interesting because um, the way I would see it uh, sticking to the, you know, drug addiction and, and those kind of metaphors. And that's why I was thinking a lot with the final sequence um and we'll we'll kind of tear more into it a little later but i i saw it as like say this is a movie about someone falling into drug addiction or letting drugs like fully engulf them i saw that last scene as like when that person like finally takes like i don't know meth or heroin the first time and it's that like beautiful high and showing how good they feel and how wonderful it is because i mean Full disclosure, I haven't taken meth or heroin, so I don't know what that feels like. But uh, I imagine it feels pretty good or else you wouldn't fuck your whole life up about it. Um, so I like I see this as a movie, if, if it was a drug addiction movie, that the final scene is like their first hit of pure heroin and you're seeing the ecstasy. But then you also know it's heroin, so you know where this is going. Um, so at least that's how I saw it. I um, I, I think I agree with, with Jared on it. it to me... The movie, it almost seems to argue, like, because Andrew says that he he doesn't want to be great. He wants to be one of the greats, mm-hmm. right? He, he it, It's not enough for him to just be pretty good, right? To do a good job. He needs to be one of the greats. And because of that, I think for him, that means that his life can't matter at all. There, mm-hmm. There is no satisfaction that he is personally looking to gain from life everything that matters is legacy, right? People are, none of them at the dinner table, nobody knows who Charlie, nobody knew Charlie Parker personally, but they're all talking about him. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what Andrew wants. He wants people who do not know him when he's long dead and gone to be talking about him. That's like his end goal um, in my mind. And I think like he's, he's at the end, he's been able to destroy himself enough that this new version comes out. Right. And I think that he's like happy that Fletcher's essentially killed him. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Essentially killed him because, you know, there there's so many parallels in the narrative that like uh, Neiman is a young or he's on like the path of Charlie Parker, or at least the way that Charlie Parker is depicted in this film, I think would be the fair way to put it. 
do the ends justify the means? And you guys are suggesting that uh, the movie is saying the ends do justify the mean. The whole, you know, the rushing or dragging scene, the throwing the chair at him, the, you know, just the pushing him past the point of any sort of like he's lost most of his humanity just to be one of the greats. And you're, you guys are suggesting that the film says that ultimately that's what's required. And if you want to be the grace, this is the only way to do it. Uh, no, that, that, that's taking it too far. That's not what either of us said. It's, um, it's, it's that in this particular case, we're presented with this really extreme mental, physical, emotional abuse. And at the end, it works. And, and not even, and I I don't think there's any ambiguity and I'm, I'm ready to just fire off why I don't think there's ambiguity. But before I do, I actually do want to really validate the thing that you said about the the drugs and how like that is like a really valid, valid interpretation. And I think one thing that supports that is that in the screenplay, and this was cut from the movie, uh, Andrew's taking drugs the whole time. Mm. Like he he sees some guys like in his class, like selling each other speed, like some 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 kind of uppers in pill form. And he's he's taking them to stay up all night drumming. Yeah, it's interesting that you pointed out the the drugs because I assume you haven't read it, right? No, I mean you've mentioned yeah. that aspect of the screenplay to me, and it does like even without knowing that when you told me about that, it's like, well, that yeah. makes sense. Like yeah. watching this movie, that was something that occurred to me. It's like, how in the fuck is this guy staying up to practice this hard for this long? Like, you know, I I I know people who you know burn the candle at both ends, and they don't do it on just coffee. Right, right, right. So I do think that um, that is solid evidence that Damien Chazelle intended the ending to be more ambiguous or more balanced or more bittersweet that um, he chose not to show us Mm. Andrew explicitly going down a very dark path through the whole movie, uh, at least in how he's like, you know, treating his body. Well, I mean, he treats his body pretty poorly, but you know, he, he, he removed one element of how he's treating his body poorly. Right. Yeah. That would have been Uh, like kind of with the trust in the audience thing. Like that would have made it very clear. Like, yeah, no room for interpretation but, anymore. But one of the things that Matt said about the way that the movie is shot, I think there's a progression on how the music scenes are shot that basically denote a story of triumph. So the scenes that Matt was describing with all the cuts, all the very tight um, handheld shots, right? Like you, the during the rehearsal scenes, uh, it's very shot. It's shot like street level. It's it's handheld. There's a lot of edits. There's a lot of very naturalistic, like, um, Misa and scene, like very, just like a lot of inserts to very specific things that like get you all the way into it. The camera is like there with the musicians all handheld, all very tight, um, during the rehearsal scenes that are just like brutal. Right. Then they have these, 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 this pair of competition scenes where there's almost nobody in the audience. It's just, flat like we're playing music and we're scoring it in uh in some way and or uh uh give, assigning it scores in some way like a like a game right and the mm-hmm. camera is like now on tripods it's still it's all of these medium shots that are just very casually observing Fletcher and the students uh in a really uh with without a lot of point of view right like it's just very very matter of fact but then at the end Andrew comes out Fletcher gives this very like very uh scary monologue about how if you guys really nail this tonight 
the people in that audience can get you back into Carnegie Hall. They can get you like these big chairs and like these big orchestras. But if you mess it up, your career is over. And they, he specifically just at the beginning of the scene sets that binary out loud on purpose. Mm. And then that scene is shot like a fucking music video. Like just <laughs> there's dolly shots instead of like these edits that are making tension between Fletcher and Aaron. You have these like whip pans so that there's specifically not edits for tension. They're just like in perfect sync. Like he's validating him. He's like lovingly fixing his symbol. He's like finger banging the air until they both climax together. He's like his new like se like sexy daddy. Like he's giving him all of the validation that his own father is incapable of giving him because he First doesn't off, understand. First off, J.K. Simmons was a sexy daddy from the first. Fuck his, his goddamn body in this movie is just <laughs> just uh, statuesque. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, by the way, but but I think that Damien Chazelle knows what the fuck he's doing behind the camera and in his screenplay, and I think he just made it so abundantly clear with the actual technique in this movie that that last scene is meant to be very triumphant in an explicit mm. way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, at the end, you can't see it. You can't see either of their mouths, but it is like totally clear to me that at the end, they are staring at each other, smiling in victory. Like they, they know he's pushed me to this point and I've got there and he knows mm. I pushed him to this point and he's finally there. I think for him, he tells Andrew, you know, I, to be honest, I never had a Charlie Parker, you know? So even if everybody I pushed, None of them would have got there. And he is including Andrew in this until one more time when he comes out and he says, hey, I know it was you. Mm. And now I'm going to fuck you over. And Andrew comes back after being pushed for the last time and beats him and finally does it. He, he's stoked. That's why he all he falls in love with him all of a sudden, you know, doing the finger banging and fixing the symbol. Uh, it's like to me, that whole scene is just them doing a victory lap. And like, you know, it's it's the Hail Mary. Yeah, uh, touchdown um, pass. Yeah, that's that's interesting because like uh, me and Jared have we were talking about this the other day too, where it's like all that I I agree, and I think that's what the film is doing. I think that's what the technique is meant to convey. Um, and I get and and when I was like 22, 23, I wouldn't have seen this, and I would have agreed with you guys went upon like another a more critical viewing. But now it's like I see the like really. Um, really acerbic irony behind all of it where all of the cinematic language going on is the cinematic language of triumph of victory of that. These guys are getting what they want, but then it's, it's always undercut with like this, this sense of, we know where this is headed. We know like what, uh, if there was a sequel to whiplash, it's not going to bode well for Neiman at all. And maybe I couldn't see that when I was in my early twenties. Now I'm seeing that uh, now, maybe when I'm older. And the, now the the big question is: is like, is that what Chazelle intended? Does it matter if he intended that or not? Um, it's kind of a death of the author sort of question at this point. I don't know. I, I think that uh, whatever he intended, like if he intended it to be ambiguous, then he's a shitty filmmaker because he didn't make it <laughs> ambiguous. And he didn't he didn't actually put things in there that suggest that Neiman's going to be anything other than like the first chair drummer, you know, for an orchestra that regularly plays well, at Carnegie Hall. Oh, and I don't think uh, I agree. I think that the the idea is that he's going to be launched in the stardom. But then the question is, like, at what cost or um, what's that going to do to Neiman? 
Well, and I, I think it establishes that there's a there's a point when um, when Neiman goes to see Fletcher play towards the end, and he he, the, he basically tells him like, yeah, you know, I uh, I you know I abuse people, but it works. He's like, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's going to work, and that's my philosophy is nobody can be great unless they're abused into greatness. Mm-hmm. And Neiman goes, is there a line? And he says, no, there's not a line. So what costs any cost? I think Chazelle is saying at any cost, even if it's your life, even if it's all of your relationships, sacrifice anything and everything to be great. Hmm. Um, Yeah, because I think that that then ties back to, I guess I was reading it in criticism of Neiman, where I guess a similar current movie, I don't know if you guys are going to go at the end and make this a recommendation. So sorry if I'm stealing your thunder on this one, but it reminds me of Tar a whole lot where, you know, Terrence Flesher and Lydia Tar, man, I want to, I want to watch that uh, crossover film Um, where Tar (laughs) is, I I would, I totally agree. Tar is so much better at making it clear uh, that Lydia Tar is like not great. Um, where Fletcher with uh, Terrence Fletcher, because you're seeing it through the eyes, like the perspective is Neiman's mostly. Um, oh yeah, you're seeing it through the eyes of a seduced student of this abuse. So I think the film has to take on that uh, vision of someone who, of why someone would want or would get seduced to this level of abuse, to this level of being pushed way too far than what is necessary. So when the film I think shows like sort of. Uh, uh, loving portrayals or or even endorsement portrayals. I think it's doing it through the eyes of Neiman, who is at this point an entirely unreliable narrator. But let, let's, uh, which well, interesting. I, I want, oh, sorry. I want, I want to pile onto that because that, that's a very good observation. And I'm going to go back to the screenplay again because the screenplay supports what you're saying really well. Uh, the screenplay has several scenes where we see Fletcher by himself in his apartment, uh, doing the um, classic I'm a saddled man in my apartment alone thing where it's like there's a picture of his wife and daughter over here. He's heating up like a shitty like banquet microwave dinner and he's sitting down to like eat it. And, oh, like, no, I'm sad. Darkness by himself while he throws on this like really nice jazz record, you know, and he's in there and you're seeing all the all the different inserts of the things in his apartment. Later on, when they win that competition, he's like he gives this like very kind of sweet speech about the guys in the band in the movie that's just also just it just cuts away from it before right before he starts talking and there's a few things like that and then uh, but they smartly got rid of that and just turned fletcher into this enigmatic unknowable monstrous force of nature that does ground the entire movie in andrew's subjectivity which i think was very smart and again the difference between a good writer and a good filmmaker is damien chazelle realized that and uh did what you described dan Mm. But yet you're saying, um, even though, yeah, those would that would have cheapened the narrative. It would have made it much more black and white. But yet by making it ambiguous, it's also muddying the water so much to an extent that it's sort of endorsing it in the end result. Yeah, I mean, I still, I, I, I just think that there's there's so many people that feel the way that you do, right? But there's also so many people that feel the way that mm-hmm. we do, even yeah. if it was a 50-50 split that is 50% irresponsible and mm. makes this a bad movie. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, t- I totally get that. Um, actually then we'll get into this later. Cause I have, I have some more explicit thoughts about that, but moving uh, on to the, we'll, we'll call this genre 
of uh, Whiplash because Whiplash isn't like it's about music, but it's not really a music movie. Like it's kind of using music to or the the music scene to talk about other things. And uh, Jared, I think you said in your reading of the script, like Chazelle explicitly brings up other genres specifically. And I think that's why I gleaned onto it very easily. Uh, the, the genre of sports films. Um, so if you want to, you're the, the one who read the script here. So if you want to kind of go a little bit deeper into how is Whiplash secretly a movie about sports? Yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll just, again, like uh, just spout out the thing from the screenplay that, that jumped out at me and I'll let you, I almost still give you guys a thunder for what you want to say on this topic, but the screenplay, when we're introduced to the other guys, well, when we're introduced to the Nassau band, like the lower level band that, um, that Andrew's part of, at the beginning, they're kind of the classic jazz nerds, right? Uh, they're they're like real jazz players who are who are nerds, right? Uh, I I you know they the, like most of the jazz players that I know look a lot more like me than like Dan, right? Um, and uh, well, I thought jazz the, was for cool guys, you know, smoking those jazz well, cigarettes. There is that one guy, Ryan Connolly, who could be like your little brother in the movie, the other drummer in the Nassau band, but he ends up in the studio band too. But anyway, when we go and meet the guys in the studio band, it describes them as all like tall, powerfully built, muscular, handsome, like like it, a varsity like, football team. It much. describes them as I think it literally says that they seem like a football team hmm. or something along those lines. And uh, you know, I think the intention in the screenplay was just to make Andrew a small mm-hmm. underdog which also happens in a lot of sports stories where the, the little guy, the li- like the literally little guy, you know, the is able to, yeah, is able to play football. Uh, but yeah, it, it, you don't really get that in the movie. Like the, the guys that are in the studio band, you don't get great looks at them, but they don't look like Greek gods or anything like that. Um, but it is in the script that he points out that they, they look like athletes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's so much with a uh, sports movie genre here. Like, I mean, there's, there's a training montage for all intents and purposes, basically, um, you know, like you mentioned, the training, uh, the underdog story, the the fact that they're going to competitions. There's like, you know, the the competition before the um, the car wreck. Like even the car wreck scene, which I think he subverts a little bit because you have like, oh my god, the unexpected injury. Mm. The star player is going to be out. Is he going to be able to recover? They subvert it by making it not something he's got to like fight through and recover from, but just something. He's so gone at this point that he just completely ignores the fact that he just got T-boned by like a semi truck and just takes off and is like, I'm going to do it anyways. I am unstoppable at this point. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the whole thing just it it, it drips in, in all of those like sports movie tropes, but I think they work. Like, I don't, I mean, all of that is like the tension that I actually like, it's just fits in the movie. And even though like, I think, the, the reason why, like, I think I generally, it's not that I think it's a bad movie that I don't like it. Right. Like, I think there's a difference from not liking it and being like, it's a bad movie. There's a, there's all of those similarities are things that I think are good about it. That's like interesting because it, it's really what helps like drive that tension because you know, it's going to be a movie about this guy becoming better than he is. If it's not that, then what is it? And so it, it's going to fall into those tropes. And I think it's interesting uh, with, how are you saying it's like the star player overcomes the injury and he like uh, makes it so that he can shine. And and I think Jared, especially you have more experience in music than I do because I have zero experience. And that's something that frustrates me about sports movies 
is that it's always about the individual in a in a big team sport. Um, so like uh, I'm just. I don't know. I'm trying to think like if there's a movie about a quarterback or a pitcher or something like that. And, and that was what I, what I did in baseball as a pitcher. And it was, it was very apparent to me. It didn't matter how good or bad I was. Um, if I didn't have a good team behind me, I was useless. Like it, it, it just didn't, it didn't matter what, like how much of a prodigy I was And this movie uh, and, and sports movies tend to lean into that trope or like one very special boy with a very interesting journey can like just take a whole team and make them all great with how great he is individually. And it's like this sort of great man theory idea of like one guy can just grip uh, a whole, you know, group of people and, and pull them in the right direction. And um, I know that like my understanding of jazz is that like the drummer is kind of the centerpiece or the backbone of a band, but like uh, Neiman was only as good as the band around him. Yeah, and this movie seems to suggest that like he was like this separate entity that was above everyone else in the band. And I mean, you see like what 20 other guys that are also probably going, they're probably having a similar whiplash story as Neiman because like they're all in that band too, being subject under JK Simmons. One thing with that is like I was thinking about that as re watching it and. I tried to imagine for a second, like what would it be like throughout the day if Fletcher's character was writing all of them in the way that he was writing Neiman and it would be like impossible, right? He would, he would, he would be just, just destroying each person for like an hour a day and it would take up the whole day. (laughs) But it, it does seem, and I mean, even like the first scene that Jared mentioned where, you know, we have this like long push into Neiman. That's just JK Simmons's character, like becoming absorbed with him, you know, uh, uh, just, completely consumed by him that I think like he does have this obsession with Neiman's character. He seems to like really care more about the drums than he does the other parts of his band almost like he, he like it's it, it, the movie seems to make it like they're there to serve. They're there so that the drummer has something has a reason to exist and not the drummer is there for the, for them to exist. Mm-hmm. He becomes obsessed with Neiman because Neiman we're we're meant to know that Neiman is exceptional. Like he is the one guy in either band that has the potential to be a Charlie Parker, right? Mm-hmm. The movie doesn't happen at all if, if that's not the case, right? So like I think that it's not exactly fair to compare that to like a true team sport, football, baseball, anything else we talk about. I think that this movie is closer to a boxing movie than anything mm-hmm. else, yeah. which is uh I, it's not something i made up damien chazelle said that he, he said something along the lines um you know i kind of wanted to make raging bull but like somebody already did so i made whiplash yeah, yeah. um which is funny because scorsese has said like the exact same things about other movies and i think i've mentioned that actually on this pod uh i i do think it, it it does have that sort of like rugged individualism of a single sport type of movie at which is the complete opposite of the spirit of jazz though like mm-hmm. jazz, like, yeah, like, and I'm going to draw a lot on my conversation with my friend, uh, Juan Matrujillo, who is a really incredible jazz musician who's, you know, gone through conservatory training and let's uh, live this world a lot. He and I uh, had, a, had a really great conversation about this movie a few days ago that will likely publish his bonus material for this episode. But um, he really points out that like, yeah, like there are aspects of jazz where, you know, they really elevate or or really respect like virtuosity on their instruments, right? People doing mm-hmm. these impossible things, taking these, um, you know, very 
kind of self-centered solos, whatever. But but there, it's always in. It never loses the the fact that it is a band and it's the orchestra playing off of each other. They're they're lifting each other up and and like the roots of jazz, like jazz comes from these you know these communities that had to have each other's back and lift each other's up to survive. And um, I think kind of taking that and like removing the, the community aspect of jazz, the really the spiritual aspect of jazz kind of, kind of lame. Like you could have made a boxing movie. Like there's been other boxing movies since raging bull. You could have made a, a, a war movie. You could have made something else that was also, that also like rips off full metal jacket as much as this movie does. <laughs> um, I don't understand why you'd have to take something that a huge amount of people consider sacred and kind of pollute it with like this type of energy. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you uh, bring that up. Where you're almost saying it's like a mismatch where Damien Chazelle had this sort of thematic story in his mind or this like vaguer abstract thing that he wanted to communicate and he's going to communicate it through the world of conservatory music of jazz and you're seeing an inherent mismatch between the two yeah and don't get me wrong i think that he he loves jazz like in his mind like he it is always including very apparent through his filmography (laughs) of course but it, it is like a very milk toast uh, surface level, just shallow interpretation of what jazz is or can be. It, it's more of just like, uh, like I, I pointed this out again in my in my conversation with with Juanma uh, Trujillo that it's kind of hilarious that there's the scene where Neiman goes and he's walking down he's walking down the street he's eating some pizza so you know he's still in New York because he's eating a big floppy piece of pizza <laughs> and uh, he sees that Fletcher is playing piano with a small jazz ensemble in like a seedy little club. And he goes in there and after they, after Fletcher plays, he kind of rails against like Starbucks jazz, like oh, jazz is dying because uh, the goddamn CDs they sell at Starbucks are bad. And then, uh, and it's because of Spider-Man and uh, then, <laughs> uh, but, but right before that he was playing like the shittiest, like, uh, adult contempo smooth jazz bullshit you've ever heard in your life like he's literally it sounded like he was recording a starbucks jazz cd <laughs> and just that like makes me very much question like Damien chazelle's ability to like interpret jazz on the screen well what's you know my entirely lame ass untrained ear like i heard it as jazz i heard it obviously as like less technically uh complicated jazz but I didn't read it as, oh, this is like the like lowest common denominator jazz that he's just playing to make a buck or something like that. Yeah, I, it could be. Like that could be the point. I thought that scene was funny to me because I thought back to when he uh, Fletcher was asking Neiman what his you know what his parents did, and he's like, oh, my dad's a writer. Mm. So he's really he's really more of a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, is, you know, is Fletcher a really a, a jazz musician or is he really a teacher? I mean, he's a conductor, um, right? But like, yeah. you know, what is he really doing the whole time? He's just teaching. He's pushing. Yeah. And that we act when we see him play, it's like, you know. Very mediocre. And yeah, like, those... like he says, anybody can conduct. Anybody can wave their hand around on tempo. So he's almost he's almost saying like the thing that he's really good at is just being fucked up. Those who can't do teach, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and he uh, we 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 know from the screenplay that he's divorced. 
and doesn't get to see his child much. See, so like I'm his, really his glad. wife left his wife First left him when she found out he wasn't Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> oh, oh, that's mm. interesting. That um I don't know if that would have enhanced the story where now that you said like no, I don't know if his family fell apart him. because he wasn't one of the greats. Um that that's an interesting angle, but like the whole angle, I do like that they make his personal life an enigma. Yeah, um, yeah, and that just kind of reminds me with uh the whole idea that it's you know, if you're gonna do something or you, you have any kind of passion or kind of hobby or something you're even reasonably interested in, uh the only way to do it is to not only be good at it, not only be great at it, but you have to uh be the best. In fact, you have to more specifically you have to do it in a way that makes money that uh, you can capitalize on that you can turn into a profit uh, and and you're seeing uh this play out within the conservatory where like yeah not only are these people trying to be the best but they're trying to be the best in a way that they can do go professional that they can do it for a living that they don't have to do anything else it's not something that they like i mean and that's a i think that is a problem with the movie is you get no sense that anyone loves what they're doing they're just doing it <laughs> because they have to you know they got to they're musicians and they got to make a dollar out of it and this is like the best way to do it and it reminds me of this quote of this book that i read not too long ago back in college i, I read a lot of kurt vonnegut because i was exhausting um and i picked up one of his more like uh i don't know b tier ones or deep cut books uh the uh couple months ago and this quote always whirled around my head especially someone coming out of the the sports world which is so like just fine-tuned when it comes to if you're not going to be the best and don't even fucking bother uh, and it goes something like this where it's uh, a moderately gifted person who would have been a community treasure a thousand years ago has to give up has to go into some other line of work since modern communications put him or her into daily competition with nothing but the world's champions and that I, I feel like that just like really applies to Whiplash, where it's uh, Neiman couldn't just be good. He couldn't even just be great. He couldn't be like, uh, I, I don't know, I think that was his cousin or something. He couldn't be a D3 star quarterback who's just really enjoying playing college football. He had to literally be the best with no asterisks on it, no exceptions to it. And if he's not that, then he doesn't even fucking bother. And I think that's such a uniquely, uh, modern approach or contemporary approach to how people pursue their passions not to not to just like love something and explore it and see how good they can get in and see how deep they can enrich their love of this particular place but it's in competition with people it's in competition with the best people and if you're not the very best even in something like art which you know you can't quite quantify or nothing you can really quantify even sports is hard to quantify we're getting a little <laughs> better at it but uh yeah as for our money ball chat <laughs> that was good but, callback humor yeah 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 but it's just like what's what's wrong with just loving something and just exploring it in the way that you want to do it it's just so it seems so antithetical to our own sensibilities these days i think like i i think in, there's um there's a scene at the towards the beginning when neiman and his dad are enjoying raisinets and popcorn at the movies um and they're talking he's like oh i saw him today and he's like ah, i don't know if he really likes me talking about fletcher mm -hmm. and his dad says something i don't remember but he tells them like you know when you get older right when you when you get closer to my age you'll gain some perspective and he says i don't want perspective Right. Which is like he's I think this quote, it fits perfectly. And I love Vonnegut, so I'm, I'm happy to see it. But, <laughs> you know, it's he 
he he has to be like the best, right? Let's see. It is the only thing that matters. He doesn't want perspective on like how that doesn't matter. Does he just love playing jazz? Does he love playing the drums? Cool. Cause he could just go and be a really good drummer and enjoy playing jazz and have like a happy, fulfilled life. But it's not about the music. It's not about him, his personal enjoyment. It's about everybody else's validation and the validation of like the greater music community going, that guy is one of the best mm. and loving him not. And, and and he doesn't even have to feel any of that admiration. Like he doesn't care if he's dead for it, as long as he's accomplished it, as long as he knows that like in the ether he'll exist. And that, that comes out uh, very explicitly in that dinner scene where he's trying to get some validation from like, Oh, you know, I've made drummer in, in the, the, what the first band, the primary band, I forget the word is cause NASA. Um, yeah. <laughs> NASA. Uh, and like everyone sees it, oh, that's nice, honey. Oh, very cool. Oh, wow. And like he's not getting the admiration that he wants, at least from the music, uh, yeah, from people that are within the jazz world. And you see him start lashing out <laughs> at the other at the other guys who are accomplished in things that they care about in their own right. And at least uh, I correct me if I'm wrong. Um, they didn't seem like snooty or pompous about their accomplishments. They were just uh, like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's a cool thing that happened. And he just starts like, uh, I love the line. It's like, it's D three. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think the other thing is like the average, it almost kind of points out that like, I think that's where it's like the movie feels like very, like um, sometimes not maybe a like pompous or like, it's just in love with academia because it's like, these these you know bread and butter meat and potatoes people that he's family members with don't understand at all what he's accomplishing right they understand these neanderthalic things like like playing football or whatever right like, that's like what it seems like neiman's perspective is he looks down on them because their accomplishments are just ridiculous to him they're normies and, and they're normies and he and they don't understand his accomplishments because they're too they're too uneducated right mm -hmm. or ill-informed to be able to understand what he's trying to accomplish mm -hmm. and it like it's i mean i could see from his perspective how annoying it is because he's like oh my god nobody around me even gets what i'm doing uh except for fletcher yeah and, and what you're saying is about like the academia of it all and the like very particular perspective this film generally takes which i think it's a critique i i certainly am in line with when it comes to uh some blinders on this film where this is definitely a very uh east coast ivory tower academic like there's a right way to do jazz there's a wrong way to do jazz <laughs> kind of film and i think like there's at least attempts uh at critiquing it but I, I i do agree i don't think it succeeds uh and one of the ways that i think the most obvious especially on this viewing is like a uh fletcher is kind of introduced early on in the the lower level band of like just dropping like dismissive misogynist comments at the one woman you ever see in this school that's in a band that uh that gets highlighted at all and then when you get to the top level band the quote-unquote varsity band if we're going to use the sports metaphor all dudes all men and the the particular kind of abuse that Fletcher puts them through is really masculinely coded. Um, so I was wondering if you guys saw that too, or if you guys have thoughts on that or where you guys are with all that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I, I, I want to just more broadly talk about this 
movie's treatment of women and people of color, if I mm. can, because that ivory tower, you know, uh, academic elitism that you're talking about is also like white elitism. Um, mm. Especially if you're, if you're going to make a movie about jazz and like, uh, I, I think there's maybe there's like three black people that make an appearance and they don't speak or have names or anything like that. And, uh, you know, like two women and uh, one of them is just used as an example or like a victim of Fletcher's abuse. The other one is just used as an example or a victim of Neiman's personality flaws. And that's it. That's like, that's, that's the, who they are as people, those female characters. Um, and that is pretty much, you can't really say much of anything about that because there's not much to chew on, but the race thing and the the academic elitism thing. I want to point out something that really bugs the shit out of me about this movie, or at least the characters' perspectives, is that it seems to either critique this idea or to actually espouse it that somehow academics are a uh, a valid substitute for life experience, like um, <laughs> like Charlie Parker. Okay, okay. Just just to suggest that there's any sort of parody uh, or, uh, and I'm saying parity, not parody, like there's any sort of parity between the uh, maturation or the artistic maturation or the, the maturation of knowledge between Charlie Parker, uh, a black man who was born in the 1920s South who died before integration even happened, who basically had to weave around sundown towns to even play his music who uh, dropped out of high school to to, to uh, practice the saxophone to suggest that there's some sort of common ground between that person and this guy who like this white kid who apparently comes from us like a social like has the social status or social class that where uh, he can just make a, a snap decision to transfer between Juilliard and Columbia the first time he encounters a pulley. <laughs> and that's just like a thing he can do is like hilarious, but also racist. <laughs> like it's so like, like this, this movie is so like completely dismissive towards well Charlie Parker in particular. And just the, like any comparison between the fictional character in this movie and Andrew and uh, of Andrew and the real life Charlie Parker and that they could, actually have some sort of like parallel ascent in their crafts or in their lives is, mm. is, is ludicrous. Well, it'd be like uh, sticking with the whole, this is sitting in the, the genre of sports movies. It would be like making a basketball movie where it's all like, I don't know, uh, a team of all white dudes that go to a school like Duke or, or uh, I'm trying to, or Stanford or like a very high level prestigious school and you're watching it'd be like really weird to see that they're all white kids they are all very well to do. And they all like are being compared to the struggles of a, a player like Allen Iverson or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be, uh, it would, people wouldn't stand for it, but I guess like yeah, jazz music is, 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 is niche enough that like you can actually muddy those waters and get away with it and not only get away with it, but people will like love it. Well, and I mean, Chazelle went to Harvard I think that he believes that like, you know, his, his education created him, created him to be who he is. And so like, I think that like the movie is saying like, Hey, great institutions, these, these like great institutions of education mm. can create greatness because oh. look at me, I'm a, mm. I'm this great film director, mm. you know, and I wouldn't be without Harvard. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it from that angle. And like, I guess in his particular case, like he's not entirely wrong. I'm sure going to an Ivy League school certainly developed his craft. Uh, but then to suggest that that's the the way to the top is a little narrow narrow sighted. Um, and I do wonder there are there are bits in the film, and uh, I guess we can we can kind of loop this into this grander point. Um, I, I was fascinated with Terrence Fletcher's kind of a monologue. It's a conversation, but it's mostly a monologue about like, you know, there's no more harmful words in the English language than good job. And that's like the big one that I remember. But then particularly in this viewing, the the, the small line that really just kind of like weaseled its way into my brain and really has been bothering me lately is like, he says something like uh, glibly or passe about, uh, not passe, but glibly about, oh, no wonder jazz is dying. Because, like, no one wants to put in the kind of work that, like, I'm trying to get people to push to. And that that's so weird because it completely ignores the, like, the historical reality of, like, why jazz got good in the first place or got big in the first place. And the pioneers of jazz that really pushed the medium forward into the mainstream. Not even the mainstream because, interestingly, like, you know, the pioneers of jazz were mostly ostracized because, you know, it's it's sort of like how, you know, like, more hardcore uh, gangster rap is these days where it's like, oh, it's that dangerous, you know, urban music that uh, causes the kids to do the drugs, uh, you know, the jazz cigarettes of it all. And so to, to even imply that jazz is dying because uh, the, the kids dropping 60 to 70 K a year aren't into it enough. It's just ludicrous to me. I don't know. It's just, and it's so ludicrous to me that I think, I almost feel like the film is aware of it, but I don't know if you guys picked up that, that same vibe. Yeah, I, there is, there is like, um, I guess like a, a narrow, like, like Fletcher has like a tunnel vision on his purpose and like his value that it's like absolute. And this is the way that it should be. He is the, like, an, he's carrying the torch of, of jazz. He's mm. helping it stay alive mm. because he's so passionate. And why can't I find students that are as passionate as I am? Mm -hmm. It's going to die with me. You know, it's almost like he has this like grandiose vision of himself. I, I mean, also just on, you know, uh, is the movie, I mean, like, yeah, I think the, like Fletcher's character is clearly sexist. He's, you know, he's, I mean, and, and his, his whole style is like this super hyper masculine method, right? Like I, the whole time watching, I kept going, man, this guy would just crush it if he sat down with Joe Rogan for an hour. <laughs> and, oh yeah. You know, they could, yeah. they could, they could talk about alpha brain shit and like they could. All these snowflakes are just yeah, ruining have, music. And he, you know, and he could say, if he told Joe Rogan, the worst two words in the English language were good job. Joe would be like, Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Dude. Yeah. Man, oh, these, these goddamn participation trophies are just making us all soft. Yeah. No pain, I, no gain. Right. Like people, nobody wants it hard enough. Yeah. It, it, that's Fletcher's whole thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I do think like some of the lines are pretty funny. I think like, that good good job line. I think like Damon Chazelle probably got a big kick out of it. It is like a standout line in the movie, and like and it 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 really embodies like Fletcher's whole philosophy. I feel mm -hmm. like, and and that's that, what yeah. what I, all the way back up to the top where I'm saying like the movie seduced me more than I care to admit when I was younger. 
I remember when I heard that line for the first time, like Gnosis, like the worst words in the English language were good job. I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah. No, he's so right. Yeah. Like, yeah, no participation it's never, there's no such thing as good enough. Absolutely. Well, yeah, like the I first can, time I, I saw this movie, like I felt inspired by it, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I and I think um maybe that that aspect too is why I, I, I kind of can agree with you guys as this movie can be dangerous. Um but let me let me here's my little uh main rebuttal to the whole thing about whether or not this movie is uh, rotten to its core. Where, you know, uh, when you you make something, you have an intention behind it, you send it out there into the ether, the cultural ether, and it can be misinterpreted. Big examples are Fight Club and American Psycho, as I had said earlier, where instead, or uh, Watchmen is another big one with Rorschach, uh, where these characters, the, 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 the people who created them and developed them and, and then put them to screen, the idea was to not like these people. Yet they made them so seductive that people then latched on and were like, oh, that is so me. I feel so seen by it. Um, and I'm wondering, and I, I get a slight feeling that that's what Giselle was going for. Oh, the, uh, the and fact I think that, that, that you have a slight feeling about what he was going for means that he that he, he wasn't clear in what he was going for. Like, you, like well, you can't compare American that, Psycho... Like, I mean, comparing American Psycho and Fight Club to this is like, is not... Like makes no sense to me because those are two movies that are very their points of view are very clear. Like mm. like there's there's nothing in that movie that suggests that Tyler Durden is a good person or that Patrick Bateman is a good person. Like th those movies have like very very like strong points of view that may be misinterpreted by like a handful of idiots, but that's Intel. not what Whiplash is. Like whiplash uh, is, is below is beloved on a surface level by millions and millions and millions. But then I do wonder, like, why does no one like put up a meme of uh Terrence Fletcher or Neiman and say, literally me? Like they didn't they didn't uh catch on to the the cultural milieu of the time where it's like all the bones are there, but and it was a popular movie. Like, I feel like a lot of people watch it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would have to look at the numbers, see if it was as popular as American Psycho or Fight Club. But they didn't get that kind of same reaction that those kind of films had. And I do agree. I think that the films, uh, the texts themselves are appropriate and they are appropriately uh, critical of that position. And people just fucking got it wrong, which, you know, you send something out there, people can interpret it however they want. And I'm wondering why Whiplash didn't get that same, like, quote unquote, literally me treatment. Well, let, let's see where Whiplash is like 15 years from now when it's the same age that Fight Club and American Psycho are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think part of it is that Fletcher is the antagonist, not the protagonist, right? In those other movies, like Patrick Bateman's the protagonist. Uh, um, and in Fight Club, both both singular guys are the protagonists. <laughs> no spoilers for Fight Club. Yeah, if you if if I'm spoiling Fight Club for you, like whatever. Sorry, wrong podcast. You, you deserve to have. So basically, what you're saying is, uh, this movie, uh, if it was Fight Club, it would be Tar, essentially. Well, yeah. Tar Tar is a great example of a movie that does everything that you're describing very clearly and beautifully mm -hmm. and and uh, ob objectively. Um, actually, but what, what you said about the protagonist though, and like what you were saying about like the magnetism of Patrick Bateman or Tyler Durden uh, is something that 
I have a real bone to pick with in this movie. It's uh, Miles Teller is is not good. Like he. Uh, oh, go on. Uh, it's I mean, it's very clear that like the movies that you described or Tar or a, a plethora of other films that he's a protagonist that we're not supposed to think is a good person. Right. Like that's that's very clear. Right. Like you don't watch Tar being like, oh, I would love to like have coffee with Lydia Tar. Like you're not watching <laughs> There Will Be Blood being like, oh man, me and Daniel Plainview would be such good friends. But you are sitting there being like, I could fucking watch Lydia Tar all day. Mm-hmm. I could watch Daniel Plainview all day. I could watch Patrick Bateman all day. Uh, you know, uh, on and on and on and on with a bunch of examples like that. You're never going to say that about Andrew Neiman. And I think that you may have with a better actor. Like I, uh, I think that that Miles Teller is just repellent in this movie. Like beyond just playing a bad character, he ha- he has bad juju. And I think that's kind of like the one thing that it might like lend itself, like it be be good in a way, is because you kind of want Fletcher to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like and, like, and like yeah, Fletcher in a locker. Yeah. yeah, Fletcher like, does. Yeah, Fletcher no, does embody what I'm what I'm wanting, though. <laughs> Truly, that's with like Fletcher being like, uh, he almost has like the arms of like an NFL referee, you know, where he's just got like yeah. giant pythons, and he's like this older bald dude. It's like yeah. he's just so clearly like, I just want Fletcher to just like pick up Neiman, give him a noogie, and shove him in a locker, take his lunch money or something like that. Uh, he does uh, way worse to him, right? Yeah, that is true. <laughs> why do why do you think Fletcher told them? I mean, except for it just being for the benefit of the audience, why do you think Fletcher showed emotion, even though it was like stoic emotion, showed emotion and told the students about what's his name? Sean Casey. Oh, well, that's easy. It's it's to show that he lied, that he's willing to uh mislead his band. Yeah, well, that's that's uh that's what why the audience gets to hear him be vulnerable but why does his band get to do get to hear him be vulnerable mm. yeah it's interesting because yeah because basically and i've had the same thing with uh coaches before where you know he he says like you know this is only music it's not life or death like yeah it's very important but like no one's gonna die if like don't push yourself to the point of death because it ain't worth it whereas same with sports where it's like yeah like don't don't ruin your life over it. And he, you see him kind of like pay lip service to that, which is very interesting. I think maybe I'm finding it out as I'm babbling here um, that he, he says all that, but then he completely goes back on what he's saying and goes back to this very intense thing. Like it is life or death. And then for the audience, you learn that he's lying. So it, sure. it even doubles down on the, uh, the, the level of manipulation that he's willing to go yeah. through. And, and especially upon re- repeated viewings, you see like little bits and more and more layers of just how calculated and manipulative he is from the get go. Like even little yeah. bits of, you know, he gives Neiman the exact um, the exact sheets that he needs to practice in order to get into the band. And then he gives it other or to the uh, he gives something similar to the Irish guy so they can try to beat Neiman, too. It's like. Every, almost everything he does is calculated. And actually, there's one moment that he's not that I thought was really interesting. It's in that last scene, uh, like the triumphant uh, scene where Neiman kind of, quote-unquote, beats him. And 
it's when Fletcher realizes like, oh fuck, he's like, I've I'm 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 he's out of my hands. Like he's he's gone off somewhere. And you see him like in his eyes, like, what the fuck are you doing? And that's the only time in the whole movie I've seen saw in J.K. Simmons' eyes, like, yeah. oh, he's not in control yeah, yeah. anymore. Like this right. is really this is really something jarring for me. <laughs> well, yeah, the way the way I interpreted that though is like pretty like more more simple. It's like uh, Neiman just successfully led the band and played a kick ass song, and now he just keeps going into like a solo that like is really self indulgent and could possibly like fuck it up. It's like it's like what are you doing? You're on top of the world. Don't fuck it up right now. <laughs> like it's very yeah, like, like while you're ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's one other moment where he lets his guard down. It's when um, two of the guys are arguing about like who's going to play the the thing, and then Fletcher takes the phone call in his neck in the next room, and it's him learning that his old student had died, and he's in there crying. And the guys go in there and be like, "Which one of us is going to play?" And he's just basically like, "Get the fuck out of here!" And there's like tears coming out of his eyes and stuff. Did um, did Fletcher steal the the pamphlet with with the sheet yeah, music? Yeah. Oh, did he take the folder. He, yeah. he must have right. Yeah. I totally sneaky, sneaky little bastard. I tell you. <laughs> he must have really like He's really stuck up like so a, like how how fast and and silent was he by I mean because it was like two seconds and he's and not like, like right he's a big man he can't just sneak around he's like sixty five years old or something I I would love to be held by him you know <laughs> yeah me too me yeah, I'm not gonna lie yeah also <laughs> that's something we can all agree on here we are there's no conceding going on. I want to be held by J.K. Simmons' big oh, absolutely. Arm. Can I can I can I just point out a couple of like fun things that I like oh, about yeah. this movie? Just little just little fun things like uh, something that Damien Chazelle points out that I think is like just adorable and I I love it like I truly love it is he points out that uh, Andrew does the Luke Skywalker thing where at the beginning he's he's dressed like in like a white t shirt and blue jeans and slowly throughout the movie he's getting closer and closer to just wearing all black like like Fletcher. Oh, and he's oh, literally like, you know, when I he was like, when I was a kid, I really thought that was that was fun about Star Wars, so I wanted to do that. Like, literally, just said that, that. That is a lot of fun, actually. Uh, and two is just Fletcher's name is like one of those great novelistic, like literary character names, where like, like his name literally is like someone who creates like a beautiful weapon, mm-hmm. like, but who who isn't? He's not the person that's actually sh- like fighting the war, but he's the person that's making the arrow. Like he's like attaching these beautiful feathers to this like piece of wood to make it fly further and to right. like, uh, you know, to like be like a, but it, it's this like beautiful thing where it's like, he's making this thing that can fly really far because of what he's done. But it's also a, like a, a destructive thing that he's created. It's just so cool. It's like one of those, it's like, you know, something like that Melville would have named one of his characters, you know, should I really uh, like try to, to high school English class it for miles uh, no, it's not Miles Teller. Oh no, it's um, Andrew. Yeah, Neiman. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he only cast Miles Teller because there's a famous Miles jazz player. Yeah. <laughs> For some yeah, reason, yeah, yeah. I had a flip where I'm like, oh, Miles. Like he's got miles to go, but no. They, oh no, not you weren't thinking of Miles Davis. <laughs> I guess it does uh, kind of wrap around in that. No, one. he. That's like the only reason he cast my. Like he he hates Miles Teller. He just likes that a guy named Miles is in his jazz movie. Where um, I'll I'll give a full disclosure where this is the only movie featuring Miles Teller where I really like Miles Teller in this, um, and it's uh, not to I'm I'm sure he's a very nice guy. I'm sure he is kind to the people around him. So I don't mean to do Miles Teller slander, 
but man, it's not a lot of charisma on the screen when I see him there. Like like the new Top Gun, I'm like, ugh, Miles. Like you know, I I liked him in the new Top Gun like a lot. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm, there's I'm, that scene on the beach. Yeah, <laughs> where they're all playing football this time yeah. instead of volleyball. Oh, I, I I'm I'm sure he's a nice guy. His wife has a killer Instagram where she features him a lot. It's good stuff. Um, yeah, it's like nothing. <laughs> like you know, I'm sure if you put me on the screen, I wouldn't completely soak up every inch of the frame. It doesn't make me a bad person. Uh, well, he. I mean, there was like a whole article that came out about him in like 2015 or 2016 about how he was a jerk. It's like a whole oh, Rolling Stone no. thing. I don't like when people uh, jerk smile. I mean, uh, I mean, it seems like he has repaired his image at this point, though. Yeah, that's Top Gun Maverick is a giant, giant hit, and he's <laughs> people loved him in it. I'm sure he's going to be in a bunch of things, but there was this mysterious thing where he was cast as the lead in La La Land, and then that article came out, and then like a month later, he had dropped from La La Land. That would have been horrible. I mean, it, a lot of land already isn't great, but that would have, <laughs> have knocked it down a peg. Uh, I at least enjoyed two hours of watching Ryan Gosling be a little forlorn and sad. What What else do we have to like that? Is there any like anything super meaty that we haven't that we haven't covered yet? I guess uh, the main question is: Have I convinced you guys that uh, Whiplash is a beautiful film, uh, completely rife with irony? and using all the tropes of successful triumphant uh, narratives to undercut it and show how, while he has triumphed, he is uh, on a path to ruin or have you guys succeeded in convincing me of this is just a dangerous film. That's about uh, that is kind of glorifying abusive methods in order to squeeze every last juice of talent out of people. <laughs> I don't know if either of those can be true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one last piece though is uh, the final scene. Let's just let's just sit on the final scene for a hot sec. Kind of really erotic, like those two guys. Oh yeah. Oh my Love, god. T- tender, loving, but also <laughs> also also like um for like a little bit a little bit um ru- like roughly erotic as well. Like to uh to you know undercut the tenderness. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. They they were I was getting a little like the, these two souls were communing they were convening well and and it's sad because his real dad is like fifteen feet away oh I know the dad he wants is the one he's actually like really connecting with. he has a nice moment with his dad though like they like hug it out like they're they're nice to each other in the screenplay he pushes his dad away he's like get the fuck out of here I'm like busy up here oh, that would have been terrible yeah really yeah yeah and then he goes and, and he does the same thing with Fletcher. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the final scene is really like it's 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 almost like you know he's been toying with selling his soul to the devil the whole movie, and he's finally willing to give everything over. Finally, fa- finally, Faust has uh has has mm. you know give given his given his soul. Yeah, yeah. That's my- but but now he'll enjoy the riches. You know, he'll enjoy the fame. It might kill him in three years uh, but- until he dies in a gutter, addicted to heroin, in about eight years. Yeah, but it'll be worth it because he'll be remembered forever. To him, at least. And I think that's that's why that comment right there is why I think the film succeeds. Because, yes, Neiman got what he wanted. But I think the film succeeds in showing it's like, that's not something you should want. I don't. I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century would be anyone's idea of success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think... I, 
I think it's really hard. I, I, I think the movie doesn't want you to go. Yeah, he did it, but it wasn't worth it. I think the film is saying like, oh, it's definitely worth it. Or like, yeah. at least it's honest about um, if, if you're going to be the greatest musician, I guess in this case of the 21st century, uh, in this day and age, in these material conditions, this is how you do it. And uh, choose for yourself whether or not that's uh, that's virtuous or not. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that really, though, the, again, the movie is from Andrew's subjectivity mm. to him. Mm. The greatest possible validation that he has achieved it is Fletcher validating it. Mm. And at the end, he gets unabashed, explicit validation from Fletcher. And then the movie ends immediately. <laughs> True. I don't know what else to take from that, man. Like, I actually really think it's fucking cool that this movie ends at the climax, that it literally just it just completely, you know, just disregards any kind of denouement. But like, man, I, I don't know how it could possibly be any clearer that him and him and Fletcher like are in agreement and they've they've both won. And there's there are uh, they're surrounded by people who also seem to believe that they have won, right? No, I, I totally agree with that. But then it's it's a perspective of the audience, and that's kind of this third party of like, what if this is all rotten? And I guess I picked that up where it's like, yeah, they won, or Fletcher wins, Neiman wins, uh, the the people or the you know the ivory tower judges also win because they get to see some new talent or something like that. And I guess I walk away from the film thinking it's like a, a, a larger, not a takedown, because I don't think Chazelle wanted to, uh, to attack it, but it's a larger critique of like, yeah, all these people got what they wanted, and what they wanted is rotten to the core. The, the, the Where I kind of think like the audience is supposed to see it from is from Neiman's dad. So Neiman's dad, oh, looks, yeah. looks, at the very end, he's he's looking through like a crack in the door or something. I think mm. he's still outside, but he's looking through and he's like gobsmacked wide eyed watching his son play in a way that he didn't know was possible before. Like he's seeing this evolution. He's no longer his son. He's now ascended. And, and so for me, I took it as like, Oh, I'm the audience. I'm the dad. I'm in the, I'm in the, the, you know, in the audience section of this theater watching this i'm supposed to see like this revelatory evolution of this of this kid now he's become something better because of this you know trek through hell he's had to go through yeah he has no mom but now he has two dads and they both are very <laughs> proud of him this mm -hmm. this is queer cinema actually he's got yeah the story of every good boy <laughs> losing a mom gaining a dad <laughs> uh but no that's actually i never thought of it that way and the next time i've watched this that's that's actually i think a really uh insightful way to look at it is watch it through his dad's eyes because i think that is that could be the most instructive way to to look through this narrative um you know so guys i don't i don't know if we're gonna we're gonna really actually get much like get much more common ground or not <laughs> um i after listening to like your reasons why um you, you think it might be ambiguous when we as the audience are meant to interpret it in a in a more nuanced way i i, I don't think it's in the movie like i think that like you can you can do that and like and you can interpret that way but i don't think there's actual like tangibles in the movie that support it i just and i, I don't think that we have enough time to to try to actually dig into that further
oh, come on, we can make this a four-hour episode. Yeah, I know we also, like, we wanted to do, I mean, there, there's certain things that, like, have been beaten to death, like, you know, is the music good in this? And, like, is it is this, is this realistic for, uh, for like, a jazz, like, prestigious jazz conservatory? And that sort of thing, like, you can find content on YouTube. And actually, a lot of that stuff, um, and, and also, oh, like, the hand-waving away of, 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 like, people of color in the movie. Yeah, we, we should, we should, we should uh, put out the bonus content of my conversation with Juanma because he covers it in a way that I don't think any of us really could, or it would be appropriate for us to. Um, and that also includes like some of the things about Charlie Parker and like the, the all the the different like mirroring it that we touched on a little bit here, but, but one we will touch on more as someone who's in the world of jazz, who is a person of color, who kind of lived it and has, has kind of has, has a little bit more of a, uh, a sharper perspective on that sort of thing. That's, that's a lot more earned than any of ours, but, uh, I will concede this. We, what we're doing, the very nature of this podcast is exactly what Andrew Neiman and maybe Damien Chazelle by, by extension are discussing in that dinner scene in that none of us know Damien Chazelle. None of, none of us know really anyone who made this movie, but here we are talking about it for two hours, mm-hmm. having an extraordinarily enriching conversation about a powerful movie that I happen to really hate but I will concede that it, it is an obvious inspiration for incredible conversation. And it is a very powerful movie. Yeah. And that's, um, <clears throat> and I agree, like this isn't one that I, uh, that I hate obviously. Um, but th- there is something really fascinating, a movie that you have a strong response to and it, and it initiates really, yeah. really interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Like, listen, if, okay, let's say I'm a jazz drummer. And I, that's, that's what I've devoted my life to. And there's two paths I can go down. One, 90% of the people who, not like, let's say 90% of the people that uh, listen to my drumming, they fucking hate it or, or, or they're, they're, you know, they're okay. They're okay with it. The other 10%, it is like the, literally the greatest drumming they've ever heard. I would much rather be that than a hundred percent of the people thinking that my music is pretty good. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, like, I, and so like, even like me, I, I'm representing this, this, like, I hate this movie 90% and I love it 10%. That's way better than like, you know, the, the Marvel of the week that I like at 65%, you know, so what you're pretty much saying is the next movie we've got to do is Zack Snyder's justice league. Like kind of 50 50 on (laughs) (laughs) but no i get what you mean there are so many movies or books or video games or anything where it's like i i read it i consume it in whatever way that there is and what i end up winding up uh finding more interesting is talking about it with people where maybe i didn't uh have a very visceral experience when I, i consumed it but in having conversations with people in the ideas that it brings up and it does it in a way that is effective enough that, or the text is rich enough that you can at least there's something to dig into. And I think for better or for worse, whiplash at least has that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think like the worst thing like any piece of art can do is, you know, have its audience feel lukewarm about it. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Either, either, I mean, either love it or hate it, but don't just, feel whatever about it what's the point right and totally agree like if you can talk about it for two hours there's some there's some element of value there there has to be yeah you know like this movie teenage badass i watched not too long ago i talked to jared for hours about how terrible it was but you know at least i got to like it it elicited a response in me and that's exactly 
<laughs> okay, that's a great segue to my recommendations. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, um, well, some one of them's already been spoiled, and actually, I wanted to talk about Tar, but we already actually gave a pretty pretty solid recommendation for it and good comparison. But my first recommendation uh, is a movie that I I also watched this week. It's the one movie that I uh, that really doesn't have any thing other than very tangentially to do with with whiplash but uh uh it's a movie that has a real love and passion for music that goes through it and it also is about this sort of obsession or this drive that creates this sort of myopic mania in a person and the just absolutely ludicrous lengths they are to go to realize that this their dream and all the repercussions that come from that. It's a movie that also has a really, really, really unhinged Klaus Kinski. Uh, <laughs> and it's the movie is Fitzcarraldo. There it and, is. <laughs> uh, uh, by, by Werner Herzog from, I think, 1981. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, uh, Fitzcarraldo is about this, this guy who's like, a, uh, he is a, a white immigrant in South America and he loves the opera. And he really, really wants to build an opera house uh, in this kind of more remote part of the Amazon. And to do that, he has to get this like ship basically up and over like this waterfall and down this river and stuff. But it's a gigantic ship. And uh, uh, it's all just about his obsession with getting the ship from point A to point B, which should be impossible. But it's not because Werner Herzog did it in real life to film the movie. (laughs) Um, And so there's a whole documentary that uh uh that i forget the name of why am i forgetting the name of the documentary but you can look it up and uh there's a documentary about Werner herzog's absolute the lunacy that he put himself and his crew through in order to create this movie and how it you know exactly adds this meta narrative to the to the movie itself and um it's a kick-ass movie it's about music the people in it really love music unlike some movies and uh yeah, Fitzcarraldo is my second favorite Herzog narrative feature right after Gary the Wrath of God. And I think he made this one like maybe five or six years after that one, also with Klaus Kinski. And uh, yeah, Fitzcarraldo is a, is a good anti-whiplash from my point of view. Uh, yeah, Matt, do you have any, uh, if you double feature whiplash, what would you put it with? I do. Um, yeah, I, I would have suggested Tar as well, but I'm not going to. Um, so I think my, my recommendation would be uh, Nightcrawler. Oh, I think it's a it's a pretty similar movie. Actually, it came out the same year as Whiplash. I think. So twenty fourteen, if I not very so. close. Um, but you know, they're both movies about like people who are like overly ambitious and who are willing to do anything to become successful, even if those things are immoral, possibly illegal. Um, and yeah, I I really like Nightcrawler. I think I think if you liked Whiplash or you didn't, it's it's a movie you should check out. And I think they explore similar themes. Yeah, no, that's a great pick. I didn't I didn't even think about that. That would be oh, I just still have that singular scene of uh, I can't remember exactly how it happened. Like someone's being pulled off on a stretcher, and then you have that shot of Jake Gyllenhaal just like looking down at him with the most evil face I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Um, but for mine, so I like to I like to wind mine up by describing it and seeing if you guys can guess it. Um, so this is a movie from the 60s. It's a French movie. 
uh, about, and the reason why I thought it was similar to Whiplash, where this is a movie where it's someone who has a very particular idea about the best way to do things and a code of what is right, what is wrong, and follows it so strictly and so religiously that it it destroys his life. He's isolated. He has no uh, outside life outside of this very particular way that uh, means success. I'm being vague on purpose because if I said some uh, specificities, it would be uh, very clear. We got uh, 1967 Les Samurai as a uh, as a double feature with Whiplash, mm. and I think the character I forget his name exactly. Hold on, I'm I'm gonna go right over. Oh, Jeff Costello. I think him and uh, Andrew Neiman would be uh, two kindred spirits, just in very different vocations that they're trying to do. Interesting. I haven't seen that. I haven't yeah, followed either of these recommendations. I oh, think really? Um, if uh, if you like Drive, this is a good like proto Drive. Excellent. I love. Drive. I'll recommend a movie that Matt has seen. So, uh, uh, I, I do think that there's like there's ways that uh, that there's there's like some very striking similarities between Teenage Badass and Whiplash that mm. I think that I just that ring a lot more true for me in Teenage Badass. Also, Wait, about, Matt, have you uh, seen Teenage Badass? I'm not. I have. No. I have. Oh, okay. <laughs> how many? How many times? How many times? Like, if you count Ugh. all of, all of the time, all the like the like the editing that you saw, all of the like even like like the, the the scenes that you participated in. Like, let's say you even count you count every take that you as an actor did. Uh, how many times have you seen? You know, all uh, like how many times have you seen a hundred minutes of oh. Teenage Badass total? Probably like twenty five times. <sighs> I've seen no movie twenty five times. It's I've seen it, Frozen it, it, twenty five times honestly, this year. Like I don't <laughs> honestly, I I I could not. I mean, I could watch it again, but I I like it's so hard for me to go through watching it. Um, yeah, just because I've seen it so many times, I'm like, yeah, editing it or just like you know, prepping any like promotional materials for it. Like, there's we had to watch it so many times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which so, I mean like, is normal, but it's like, oh god. So, so it, it's a movie about a a, a kid. His, his name's Brad, and he's uh, he's a drummer. He's got a single mom. He, you know, uh, uh, he he's you know he's he's a poor kid. Like he he's grown up without a lot of means. You know, not a lot of prospects. And he's redheaded. That's yeah. And part. he's a ginger, poor kid. And he, uh, uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, he wants he wants to be a famous drummer. He wants to be a great drummer. He wants to be in a great band. And uh, he's just like a good kid who's like in some bad circumstances, but you never ever like get the feeling that he's like a bad person. He's still just a good kid who's like had a shitty upbringing and is facing a, a shitty adulthood potentially. And uh, it's all about him butting heads with this like enigmatic, totally unpredictable, power hungry front man. And like all of the, these just like, you know, chaotic things that get in the way of them playing this, you know, this shit this performance it's going to be legendary in their minds and uh i think it rings just a lot more true like probably because like i was in a like a like a punk rock band as a teenager and i also like grew up like without means like a single mom whole, whole nine yards anyway uh it's, it is probably just a lot of personal bias <laughs> that i'm bringing into this uh in a variety of ways but i do think that teenage badass does a lot that whiplash is trying to do better I mean, so, I'll take it. Yeah, it's like 
Am I wrong terrible. about any of that? Better than am, I mis- am, I mis- am I misremembering the movie? No, no, you're not. And and actually, I mean, I never thought about Whiplash when we were working on it, um, like when we were writing the script, which is really funny. But um, watching it this time, I was like, oh my god, there's so many similarities. <laughs> uh, like there, there really are. Um, yeah, it's like it's the uneducated poor man's Whiplash. Like if that's mm. if blue that's collar the elite- whiplash. yeah, it's blue collar Whiplash, right? If like if that's the elitist. No collar tower version. <laughs> this is a no collar whiplash. Yeah. 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 Um, um, oh, another just I won't go into it, but fun recommendation. Just because I think Jared made the joke for this would be the nightmare blunt rotation. It would be Terrence Fletcher. It would be Lydia Tarr, and it'd be the teacher. Uh, from uh, the piano er- teacher. Yeah, from the piano teacher. Those three. <laughs> Terrifying. Uh, yeah, so I think um, those are our recommendations. I think unless anyone has any uh, very important parting words or anything that they want to get out there before uh, we start wrapping this up. Well, I just want to thank Matt for for joining us, and I oh, can't yeah, wait for Matt, Matt to join us again for a movie that he picks. Like, I can't wait. Like, what's what's on your mind right now? Like, what's the movie you'd most want to do this for? Oh yeah, if you if you forced us to sit here for two hours, like we just forced you to sit here for two hours over any film oh god uh you know i honestly might i feel like it's probably been done a million times but but i would think because i've seen it so many times and i'm so obsessed with it is the matrix i mean we've got 2001 coming down the pipeline soon so we're not afraid to do movies have been done to death man I thought you were gonna say Magnolia. Do you still have the frog back there or is it a fit? It's a frog. Um, right? I do. I do have a Magnolia frog. Ah, yeah, that's ma- great. You know what? Mag- Magnolia would be one as well. That one's incredible. I would, lo- so I would love to do either. Our book, we could add both to the queue. I would totally do Magnolia. Do I, do I also see the Quentin Tarantino screenplays still stacked back there? Yep. Oh, well, yeah, let's do that little known uh, sleeper hit that maybe you haven't heard of. It's called Pulp Fiction. I don't know. It's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, Jack, Jackie Brown's my favorite. Uh, oh, yeah, it's still it's still my favorite Quentin movie. I do. I, I would like I would, a lot more than I anticipated. It was the last Tarantino movie I saw. I would love to like, do Jackie Brown and have you convince me that it's the best one. Well, All you're right, the that, one that thinks Hugo is the best Scorsese movie because it is. <laughs> I've got and I've I've got an argument as to why it's the best one. I would at least I've got it. the time of day to listen to Jackie Brown being the best movie, but Hugo, you you just didn't make, get me to concede on that one. No, and that's okay. I didn't expect to. <laughs> you like Benjamin Button? Benjamin Button is the best David Fincher movie that has ever been made. And what I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> die on that hill. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's just like what? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Matt, I, forgot Matt, that, that, I forgot David Fincher even made that movie. You don't oh, think I that didn't. the Curious Case of Benjamin Button is David Fincher's best movie? So you think it's Mank? No, Mank. it's Alien Three. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, before we before we exhaust the audience uh, for for much longer, I think we should probably wrap this one up. Then we can bullshit off the pod another week in the box for whiplash we were drumming it out for the last two hours uh as always with concessions uh i'm dan and i'm jared and um we didn't touch on russian dragons at all 